Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do, you turn to Judges chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off the last time I was standing up here. In verse 6, going to read down to verse 20, the first sentence or so of verse uh, verse, uh, 20. So please listen now from Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered to them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Let's go before the Lord once again. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word because you tell it the way that it really is. When your people are good, you bless them and you commend them for the good that they do. And when your people are evil, you rebuke them and you give them according to their deeds. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to learn from what your people have done in the past. Help us to do the good or not do the evil that we find in this passage before us. Please enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, we ask. We ask it, Father, all in Jesus' name. Amen. How many people here have ever gone to Macy's? I guess that's most everybody. They used to have what they called their red apple sales. Do they still do that sort of thing today? I I just get in the mail things about sales 
up there all the time, but I don't see anything about red apple sales. Well, they used to have these red apple sales, and you could go, and you could get some really good stuff. They would put their clothes and their uh, other merchandise on sale, and it was really a blessing to be able to do that. And when my daughters were growing up, my wife and my daughters love to shop especially when they thought that they were going to get things really uh, cheap. And you could tell that they loved to shop because some of their favorite slogans were shop till you drop and born to shop. And when they came home from shopping, usually the first words out of their mouth to me was, guess how much money we saved you. <laughs> now, mama didn't raise no fool a little light would go off in my head saying that I bet I would save a whole lot more money if you hadn't gone shopping. But they did get really good stuff at a very reasonable price. And I thought that, uh, you know, gee, I would have liked to have saved the money. But then if I had done that, or if they had done that, then we wouldn't have had all the neat things that they had bought. And so it was a matter of having the right perspective to interpret the shopping that they did. And it's a matter of having the right perspective when we interpret the book of Judges, especially is that's true in the first two chapters of Judges. In the chapter one, we witnessed last time a four-stage decline of Israelite spirituality. Initially, the Israelites were faithful when they came into the land under Joshua, and they dominated the Canaanites. But eventually, they became faithless, and they uh, lost the battles that they fought with the Canaanites, and not only lost the battles, but eventually were even ruled by the Canaanites. They were being formed in the image of paganism rather than being conformed in the image of God. So the church of God was being canonized by the pagans that were around them. However, note in verses 6 through 10, it covers basically the same ground as it did in chapter 1. It refers in those verses to the death of Joshua and to the state of the people just like it did back in chapter 1. And so in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6 are parallel in time. And therefore, they are both introductions to the book of Judges, but they're seen from different perspectives. And so the first introduction narrates events generally from the Israelites' point of view, from a human perspective, things that you can see with the eye, things that you can hear with the ear. But the second introduction tells us things from God's perspective. Or put another way, the first introduction tells us what happened, but the second introduction tells us why it happened and its significance. Now, you might ask, well, why are there two introductions? Well, the reason is because God doesn't want us to see things merely from a human perspective. God wants us to see things from his perspective. He wants us to think about the things that we see in the way that he thinks about those things. And in doing so, the second introduction gives us the general principles by which the remaining stories and judges are to be understood. The remaining stories in Judges begin in chapter 3, verse 7, and go through chapter 16. And each story more or less includes the same cyclical 
or repeating pattern of five characteristics. They are, number one, apostasy, the human inclination towards sin and rebellion against God and his commandments. Number two, punishment, the angry reaction of God in chastening that sin. And then characteristic number three is outcry, the groaning of those under God's chastening hand. And then number four is deliverance, God's rescue from the chastening. And number five is rest for the people. And so if you want to have the proper perspective towards judges, you must remember these principles in the upcoming stories. Otherwise, you'll misunderstand God's message through the rest of Judges. And so first of all, in verses 6 through 13, we see apostasy. After Joshua's faithful generation died off, another one arose who did not know the Lord, according to verse 10. We might think that the problem there was that, well, they just were not familiar with the facts about the Lord. But the word know, as it's used in Scripture, doesn't simply mean an intellectual comprehension of the facts. It's sometimes a relational term, meaning that God has an intimate regard for his people. He loves his people. They are the object of his favor and love. And they should have the same love for him. But this next generation did not have the same loving relationship with the God. Yahweh and his deeds did not matter to nor have any influence over them. And so they had a willful, spiritual ignorance of the Lord. And these verses in Judges teach us that the younger generation remind us how important it is that children be raised in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord Thus, they must be taught about the great salvation that God has provided for his people. Children must see that dad and mom trust the Lord, that they believe in the Lord. They do what the Lord says. They believe that the Lord is good and that he is trustworthy so that they, not only do they do this for their own selves, but so that they influence their children to do the very same thing. And the children know that mom and dad love them more than anything else, no matter what comes. And so they are the most likely to trust what their parents teach them about life. And so it's only natural for them if their parents trust in the Lord that they see him as good and loving, that they will likewise follow in that same faith. Of course, the parents' instruction and example may not guarantee the children's salvation. We don't know what the Israelites did in that generation with Joshua. Maybe they were faithful to teach their children or not, but it certainly did not guarantee the salvation of their children. But God tells us that we must do these things. It is a means of grace that God has given to us where the Lord may and most often does use in bringing children of believers to himself. He doesn't have to do it that way, but it seems in Scripture that is one of the very reasons that he gave the family. is so that the seed, that is the children of believers, would come to saving faith in him. That's what it teaches us in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 and following, where it says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was, one, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The primary emphasis of this passage was for the men who were being faithless in Israel to their covenant brides that they were committing adultery and not being faithful to it. But this little side note, almost just an aside in the passage says, what was God seeking in this? Obviously, apart from you being faithful in your marriage, he was seeking godly seed. He was seeking godly seed because that's normally what happens in families. Again, God created the family so that children would grow up to be believers. That's the most important thing in their life. It's the most important thing in all of our lives. And so it's important in our children's lives as well. Well, this spiritual ignorance led Israel to do evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Baal was the god of storm and fertility. Fertility of the crops and livestock and family and being the god of fertility. Naturally, Baal had a companion. Uh, her name was Ashtoreth or Ashtar. Please listen to Ralph Davis in his commentary on Judges describes these pagan deities. And let me say before I go on that I'm indebted to a lot of the material here that I have Ralph Davis uh, from his commentary. He says, quote, in Canaanite theology and agriculture, the fertility of the land depended upon the intimate relationship between Baal and his consort. The revival of nature was due to intimate relations between Baal and his partner, and hence the Canaanites practice sacred prostitution as a part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to the Baal shrine and have intimacy with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there, and the man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman's ashtarch. And so the Canaanites' idea was that the action of the worshiper and the shrine prostitute would encourage the divine couple to do their thing, and then the rain, grain, wine, and oil would flow. Now let me tell you something before we proceed on. Children, I want you to listen to me for right now. The, the Bible uses terms like prostitute and harlot and whore. All of those terms mean the same thing, and it's talking about usually an evil woman who sold her love to a man. And God said that was an evil thing. God, uh, God rebuked Israel severely, and he rebukes people today for participating in activities like that. Now, as intelligent 21st century Westerners, we wonder how the Israelites could have been lured in what might uh, seem to us a ludicrous materialistic belief. Well, it went something like this. The Israelite would go down to the local feed store and he would be buying grain for, uh, to plant for his harvest and he would bump into one of his Canaanite neighbors that were there and he would begin to testify about his faith in Yahweh, how God had worked a great salvation in delivering them from bondage in Egypt and how he had destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea and the Canaanite would stand there and say, well, you know, Yahweh is fine when you have to be delivered from Egypt. 
and when you have to bury the Egyptians in the Red Sea, he said, but here what really counts is taking care of the crops and the flocks and such things as that. And so if you want to be able to do that, you need to know Baal and his consorts to be able to do that. And so if you'll come down to our Wednesday night prayer and praise service, I'll show you how to get plugged into Baal theology. And so it was in this way that the Israelites were led astray from following the true God. Well, the Bible calls this apostasy, falling away from following after the true God. And in verse 17, God characterizes Israel as playing the harlot with other gods. They did all this after the Lord saved them out of Egypt from bondage and oppression. And so what terrible, terrible ingratitude the Israelites displayed to the Lord. And this wasn't a temporary condition either because verse 19 says that after each judge died their deliverance by him, Israel eventually became more corrupt than they were before the deliverance. And so there is a progressiveness in their wickedness as you proceed through the book of Judges and you need to look for it and I'll point it out to you as we go along. And so, while the first introduction in chapter 1 showed an incomplete conquest from a human perspective, the second introduction reveals an incomplete faith from the divine perspective. Or put another way, spiritual ignorance produces apostasy. And we can have apostasy too in our own lives. Apostasy can occur as simply as if we just lose interest and stop coming to church. And Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, puts it this way. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message delivered by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What was going on in the book of Hebrews? Well, that's exactly what they were doing. They were drifting away from the salvation that was revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. The people thought, well, you know, we'll just stop following Jesus and we'll go back to our Jewish roots and continue in the temple service. But the author of Hebrews throws that there is a great danger in that, that God brings wrath upon people who turn away from the salvation that he has offered them through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can drift away or neglect what we have heard as well. And we can fall away if we fall in with the wrong crowd or have an improper influence that causes us to drift away. I've been in the PCA about 40 years ago. I came into the PCA. I lived in Houston. This is my second time around in Houston, but I lived in Houston from 1976 to 1983, and I moved back to my hometown of Monroe, Louisiana, and that was where I came into the PCA. And there was a, a friend of mine there. We've been friends now, I guess, for about 40 years named Kinsel Brewer, and Kinsel was finishing up his studies at Louisiana Tech University. 
And he said that when he got there on campus, that there were people there to sign up to begin classes in the fall, and they were at the tables where there were all these organizations that you could sign up to be a part of. And this guy went around to the students that were standing in front of some of the organizations that were known for their riotous living and said to them, if you cast your tent with the wicked, they'll lead your heart whoring after other gods. Not exactly the sort of thing that you would expect to hear when you arrive on a college campus, but the fellow was exactly right. It was spiritual prostitution. It was turning away from the Lord and, in effect, selling ourselves to something that takes God's place for the benefits received. And if this concept of harlotry is repulsive to you, then you have some idea how repulsive apostasy and idolatry are to the Lord. So the world has many influences to lead us astray from the triune God, and we need to guard ourselves from such influences. We see in verses 14 and 15 the second characteristic of the cycles in Judges, and that is punishment. As a result of Israel's apostasy, verse 14 says that the Lord's anger was kindled against them. Literally, the Hebrew says that the nose of the Lord was kindled this is a figurative way of saying that the Lord was incensed, sort of like an angry bull with flaring nostrils and smoke coming out of them. And then the Lord delivered them into the hands of their enemies who plundered and greatly distressed them. Well, people don't talk in church very much about the Lord's anger and wrath. And so we might be puzzled as to why God was so angry with his people. But such devoted anger really shouldn't surprise us because it goes along with being loved. God told Israel that he would tolerate no rivals. And in Exodus chapter 34 verse 14 he says, For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And so God's anger demonstrates his jealousy and his jealousy also shows his love for us. Just imagine if you found out that your spouse was having a romantic affair with someone else. Now, I doubt that you would say, well, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. No, you'd be angry, and rightfully so. You would be jealous. And so why would we expect any less from Christ who perfectly loves his bride, the church? And so when we see God angry at his people in Scripture, instead of wondering how God could be so harsh and intolerant, we should realize that it's simply the natural outworking of his perfect love for us. And we would be the same way in his place. Thirdly, we see in verses 15 through 19 the last three characteristics of the cycles of the judges, that is, outcry, deliverance, and rest. The result of Israel's calamity was that they were greatly distressed in verse 15, and they were so to the point of groaning in verse 18. But in spite of this fact, the, Lord, the fact that the Lord was really steamed at his people, he went ahead anyway and raised up judges to deliver and give them rest. It says in verse 18, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them, he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. 
the Israelites groaning touched the heart of the Lord so that he had compassion upon them. And it's important to note here what it does not say. And the Israelites realized their great sin and they turned back to the Lord in repentance. It doesn't say that, does it? But the Lord had compassion upon them anyway. They were in the depths of degradation, but the Lord had compassion upon them anyway. It only says that they were issuing cries of anguish. And so we learn from this that the Christian life begins by God's gracious act in forgiving our sins. And it continues in precisely the same way. The Lord perseveres with us, exercising his mercy in spite of our unworthiness. Now, maybe alarm bells are going off right now in your mind. You say, gee, Ken, that sounds like cheap grace. That sounds like that we can just trust in Christ and he doesn't require anything of us. Well, if you've been around me for very long, you will have heard me say that the Christian life is a life of continuing repentance. God requires that we be repentant people with him because we will always be in the condition of being sinners. To be sure, we are sanctified sinners. We have been redeemed from the penalty and the power of sin. And there should be a progress if there was a curve and time was on the bottom and increasing in our sanctification going up the upper scale. It would look like this. There would be a progress in our sanctification. It may look like this a little bit, but there would be a progress so that we grow in our sanctification before the Lord. And so the Lord tells us that we should not have a nonchalant attitude towards his salvation and the things that he commands us. But we can never assume that our lives are pleasing to God apart from our repentance. But we can also never imagine that our repentance is the only attitude through which we receive God's favor. We are not worthy of God's favor. But God commands us that we obey his commandments. But we never do so perfectly. And God perseveres with us in spite of our unworthiness. God is gracious to us even when we don't walk perfectly in his ways. And he is so because of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God raised up a judge or a savior to deliver the Israelites from their enemies, so he does with us. He raises up the Lord Jesus Christ because the judges were types of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were imperfect saviors. The Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect savior. And he delivers us from all of our enemies. The Lord Jesus died for our sins that we might be delivered from the guilt and the oppressive power of our sinful flesh and the world. The Lord Jesus ceaselessly intercedes for our well-being that we might live in righteousness, peace, and joy. And he patiently teaches us the mysteries of his salvation by his word and spirit. And he persistently defends us against all the wiles of the devil and all the spiritual forces of this present evil age. What a generous, generous and merciful and gracious God we have. What other response can we give to this compassionate, gracious God, but all thanksgiving and worship? 
And so we can do no other than to faithfully follow his wonderful and unsearchable ways, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks that even though the Old Testament, the Old Covenants are filled with expressions of your anger and your wrath, at the same time they are also filled with expressions of your mercy and your patience with your people. This personally to me, Father, is uh, very encouraging because it shows, Father, that you do not have the fly swatter mentality. You do not stand over your people with a giant fly swatter swatting them for every wrong that they do. And we thank you, Father, for your patience with us. We pray, Father, that you would help us, that because of this, you would help us to be a little more committed to you, a little more devoted, loving you in all of your ways, loving your word regardless of what it teaches. We pray, Father, in this next week that you would help us to live in a more holy, holy way than we have up to this point. And we ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.